Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. I'm joined by my friend, Christine Kim. How are you today, Christine? Doing well. Happy the merge is over. Yes, it has merged. Um, and we're going to talk with Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading about today's FOMC meeting. Um, and we also have an excellent guest, Ben Edgington founder and product lead of Teiku, an Ethereum consensus layer client designed for enterprise and institutional stakers. Hey there, Ben. Hey, Alex. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, be with you. It's yes, great. absolutely. Before we get to Ben, going to go through a couple pieces of other news um, that are kind of interesting. I think the main one I really am upset about. I'm upset. I'm incensed. Okay. I'm, I don't want to say enraged, but I'm, I'm becoming incensed. The SEC uh, filed a um, a lawsuit against Ian Bellina, sort of an infamous ICO promoter from the 2018 era, um, which is all fine and good. But on paragraph 69 of this complaint, they made a very novel novel claim as to their jurisdiction as a U.S.-based securities regulator. So they said that purchasers of this ICO in question, uh, many of them were U.S. citizens. Okay, that 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 checks the box. They also said uh, the transactions uh, with which these U.S. persons contributed to the ICO were sent from the United States. Okay, they're Americans. That that makes sense. But then they added this other note, I think, that has a lot of people um, sort of scratching their heads. They said that, um, in addition, those transactions were, quote, validated by a network of nodes on the Ethereum blockchain, which are clustered more densely in the United States than in any other country as a result of those first two things and this novel third thing, quote, those transactions took place in the United States. This really stuck out to me. I thought that um, it's a pretty novel argument that the density, the the clustered density of nodes being in a jurisdiction somehow enhances the SEC's jurisdictional authority here. I don't think they need that, first of all, right? Americans contributing is probably enough. Um, but it's also completely irregular, Um this was in 2018. I wasn't aware that there were validating nodes in 2018, by the way, Christine uh, or Ben. Um, there weren't. Right? There, there was no validators <laughs> no, there were not. on Ethereum in 2018. Right. It was miners. There were mining nodes. Well, exactly. I thought perhaps that's what they meant, but I think it would be a a real, uh, a real stretch. I mean, I don't have the data from 2018 Ethereum mining in front of me, but very unlikely that the, that quote, mining nodes miners were more densely clustered in the u.s um i think from anecdotally we know there was mining all over the world heavily mined in asia uh for a long time as well um and and like on bitcoin ethereum you know full nodes quote unquote they don't they don't actually really validate anything they store a copy of the blockchain they may relay transactions between nodes and copies of the blockchain between nodes but they don't they don't validate so even that claim is kind of ridiculous i think it, it looks like maybe they're just on Etherscan looking at this Ethereum node chart that uh, shows 45% of nodes are in the U.S. and 19% of them are in Germany. Um, but I don't think it adds to their argument. Um, and I and but it but it is troubling because the, the the idea here is that the SEC is adding adding a an, a, uh, an analysis that they may continue to perform for crypto networks um, to give them jurisdiction over them. And, and they're doing it in a forum in which the primary stakeholders, in this case, Ethereans, are not present, right? This is a lawsuit against one ICO promoter. Ethereans are not a uh, party to the lawsuit. Um, Galaxy is not a party to the lawsuit. Consensus isn't part of the lawsuit. The Ethereum community isn't part of the lawsuit. So they're advancing this precedent, this argument, in a forum where the primary stakeholders are unable to reply um, and should they try to get involved, they the SEC has put them on the position of supporting someone who may be an unsavory character. They did the same thing, the SEC, in the Coinbase lawsuit, the lawsuit against the insider traders um, who had worked at Coinbase, where they named all of these coins as 
having been securities, the SEC did. Um, but again, in a forum where the only defendant uh, was were these essentially, you know, accused criminals, insider traders. The projects themselves are not a party to that action, so they're not really able to counter these claims. But yet the SEC is sort of laying the groundwork in court now for these types of novel arguments. I do think this one was a little bit overblown by the Twitter community, but nonetheless, this is a novel argument that, quote, the, I guess the, the cluster density of nodes could give a nation's regulator jurisdiction over it. Uh, in this case, for the purposes of securities laws. Um, that's the only one I want to really bring up today. I don't know if, if Ben or Christine have any comments on that, but um, if you do, let's hear them. Uh, as, a, as a distant observer from the other side of the pond, I, I think I maybe I speak for most of the rest of the world. We, we find this stuff really baffling. I'm this constant fight for jurisdiction over blockchain stuff from the SEC, CFTC, whatever. And I, I'm sort of sitting in here reading about it on Twitter every day, day after day after day, and, you know, Gary Gensler memes and all, all of that. And I, I'm just wondering why I care. Um, the blockchain doesn't care. Um, you know, it doesn't affect my life in any interesting way. And yet it seems to kind of dominate conversation about uh, uh, blockchain jurisdiction, blockchain governance and, uh, and future. Um, and there's a sense in which the 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 states dominates you know has high concentration of devs you know that would be a good argument maybe the set could use <laughs> I, I don't i don't know but um and uh you know drives a lot of the economic activity on, on chain so you know the usa disappearing from blockchain activity globally would be yeah have an effect but it, it wouldn't be fatal i mean you know the rest of the world is quite capable of of carrying this thing so yeah, it's it's a bit head scratching to be honest, um, and I, I I find the arguments very nitpicky and um, not yeah, um, just bizarre. I mean yeah, it, it really is bizarre. Right. It was a pretty unsubstantiated claim too. I, it's not like they cited ether this ether scan chart. That's just us musing where they may have found this information. Um, but it was almost like a throwaway comment. Um, but yet has you know it it. You don't throw away comments in a, in a in the Securities Exchange Commission's litigation drafting department. Somewhere this conversation happened, and they said, "Yeah, you know what? Throw it in." They knew it would be um, picked up by the by the commentators. So that's partly what's really surprising. It's really great points. I think both Alex and Ben about how concerning this part of the litigation is, and I wonder if this is gearing up for some more proactive regulation and legislation from the SEC, because all of it has really been um, more prosecuting against criminal activity. And that hasn't been very helpful because that's not the forum where people of the Ethereum community, people of the crypto community can really take part and and voice their concerns and their frustrations around these um, around these cases. Um, and so I wonder if there's some kind of an upcoming op- opportunity where there might be more proactive legislation and proactive clarity around where on around how, you know, U.S. regulators are, are looking at regulating this space. Yeah. And there is a forum for regulators themselves. It's called a formal rulemaking process where industry stakeholders can uh, comment and whatnot. The SEC has not done this uh, much with anything close to the blockchain industry. They've done it on a few minor sort of things. Um, I think they may have done it on like the SEC custody rule, which tangentially touches crypto. Um, but yes, I think at the legislative level, that's where uh, some of this jurisdictional fight, I I, I hope, will we'll get sorted out. Let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Bimnet, um, the Fed raised rate 75 bips today absolute whipsaw in the market i saw that s&p was up a lot and then down a lot uh sorry it was down a lot and then up a lot and then ended down a lot <laughs> bitcoin actually did something similar um but i guess has risen a bit since um but sort of back to pre-meeting levels um but total lots of volatility out there and and this was maybe like the most watched feels like of all of the Fed meetings we've had. Tell us what you saw and, and what markets uh, look like from your seat. You know, I think what you saw um, today or, you know, dur- during, you know, FOMC was, you know, a Fed that had to react forcefully to the data they were seeing. The data is incredibly strong. Um, inflation is persistent. The key components that they're monitoring are 
staying elevated and likely trending higher, you know, owners of crypto rent being, you know, the, the big part of it. Um, they're very comfortable with the idea of taking growth lower and unemployment higher in order to achieve their goal of, of, of price stability. That was very evident from the fact that they lowered their growth forecasts, um, you know, meaningfully and increase their unemployment forecast in the, in the summary of, you know, economic projections. Um, I think, you know, during, during the presser, um, you know, Powell sounded about as hawkish as he could and he acknowledged, he acknowledged, you know, the upside risks, particularly in, um, you know, OER, um, you know, one of the things I've been watching are like, you know, there's online metrics for prices, you know, how home prices and rental prices, and because, um, you know, OER is, is a lagging indicator, um, you can use these, um, you know, sort of high frequency data points to, to anticipate where, you know, the largest component of, of CPI can, can potentially print. And, you know, everything that, you know, we're seeing suggests that, you know, you're likely going to still have high inflation numbers for the next couple of months. Um, and I think the Fed realizes that. And I think that's why, you know, they, you know, surprise the market, you know, with their dot plot, you know, they suggesting that, you know, they're going to reach, you know, mid to low fours, um, you know, by, by, by the end of this year and like, you know, mid to upper fours, um, you know, by the end of next year. Um, and so, you know, pretty hawkish message market interpreted it as it should. If the fed's going to be this hawkish, if interest rates are going to be higher for longer, um, earnings need to come down and earning expectations need, need to come down. Um, equity valuations need to come down in, in, in general. So stocks move lower. Um, things like crypto also need to, to move lower. Again, you know, the world is entirely different place when one year money is 4% and so is two year money and so is three year money and so is four year money. Um, and so that's, that has a profound impact on basically every business and, and every asset. Um, and, you know, the interesting part about, you know, this hike um, is that it's in the context of every other central bank hiking, right? You had the, the, the Rick's bank hike by a hundred basis point points, um, Norge's bank, you know, hiked by 50, um, the Swiss national bank, uh, hiked by, uh, 75 basis points and the BOJ like intervened in, in their currency market. Um, and so that's the most coordinated sort of tightening of financial conditions, like, I, I've, I've ever seen. And so that's going to impact risk assets pretty materially, and it's going to continue to do so for, for the rest of the year. All right, Bimnet, thank you so much for that overview. We'll get back, and I think we'll do a little bit more with you uh, next week and in coming weeks because the markets are are definitely um, in, a, in a strange place. I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions, but we do not have time. So thank you, Bimnet. Thanks for having me on. Let's go to Ben Edgington, who I introduced at the top of the show. Um, again, a founder and product lead of Teku, which is an Ethereum consensus layer client, a CL client designed for enterprise and institutional stakers. Teku is the third most popular Ethereum CL client. It's run by at least 16% of validator node operators. Ben is a prolific writer on Ethereum's proof of stake consensus protocol and is currently writing a book about the mechanics of Ethereum's POS system. Um, Andy formerly had a great newsletter called What's New in ETH2. So welcome to the show, Ben. Really happy to have you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Great to be here and great uh, to see again my old podcast co-host, uh, Christine. Uh, lovely to be uh, uh, getting the band back together. I'm glad, Ben. It's been too long. And honestly, I still look back very fondly on our mapping out ETH2 days. I think those podcast episodes are still getting a lot of hits on Coindesk. So, Ben, um, Ethereum underwent its long-awaited merge upgrade, right? The merge. Uh, the beacon chain merged with the uh, the uh, execution chain, and um, which was Ethereum mainnet under proof-of-work, um, and to formally become a proof-of-stake blockchain. So now, I think, in the proof-of-work world, we've got Bitcoin and some stragglers, right? You know, like, I don't know, the Raven coins, and I guess Zcash still is proof-of-work mine, and mm -hmm. a couple others. Um I think Bitcoin is the only coin in like the top 25 by market cap or something, maybe the top, definitely the top 10, but I think the top 25 that is proof of work. So a huge long awaited upgrade though for Ethereum. It's been talked about for a long time. Many say that it went better than expected. Um, I think that's pretty objective 
objective fact at this point. There was no real disruption observable. I mean, despite the fact that we looked, we looked for them. <laughs> How did the merge go from your perspective? How is Ethereum faring now? Um, and was there anything surprising to you about the Ethereum network since the merge went live last Thursday? Yeah, I think it, it, it what's surprising about the event itself is it, it, it went so well. It went better than any of our um, testnet merges. It was almost a non-event. I mean, it, it was so smooth. Uh, blocks just kept being produced regularly. And there's this moment of anxiety, right, when the you, you know the switch over to proof of stake has happened and you're waiting for the blocks to come in. And under proof of stake, they come regularly every 12 seconds. So you know when a block is missed and a missing block is a sign of trouble. And on the testnet merges, you, we've had a couple of full slots, full blocks, and then we've missed one, then we've missed another, then we've had a block come in. And it's all been a bit, yeah, is it working well or is it not working well? But in this case, bang, 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 block after block after block. And it, it was glorious. I mean, it, it just went so well. Um, it was fairly early in the morning here. It wasn't quite as early as uh, for you guys, I guess, but it was like uh, 7.45 a.m. for me. Um, and, um, yeah, I got to pop my champagne about at 8am when we finalized the chain bang on time. It was, uh, it was super 8am champagne toast. <laughs> I was also up at like, it was 3am, I think New York time that the merge happened. And I think I just went straight to bed. Like right after I knew that nothing was wrong, I just like went straight back to my head hitting the pillow. Um, <laughs> it didn't, I honestly, I was joking with Alex before the merge happened that, if only the developers and the miners could do something about this egregious time because <laughs> it continued to get a few, like a few more hours delayed. Yeah. Miners were probably like dripping off the chain, getting, you know, getting their ducks in a row to do whatever they're going to do with their GPUs. So that kept getting pushed back and pushed back. But we, yeah, we were joking that that classic Twitter crypto Twitter joke. Can't the devs do something? Christine artfully <laughs> said, no, the well, devs can't do anything. The miners could do something. They could mine faster. We, we, we've done something now. Uh, one of the underrated um, benefits of the merge is that all future forks and upgrades will be uh, exactly predictable in, in time. We will time them to the, to the millisecond, literally. So um, whereas, yeah, every fork on Ethereum in the past has been uh, at a given block height or or in this case at a given total terminal difficulty uh and um it's been fully under miners control we haven't you know it's it's drifted backwards and forwards by hours and uh has been very uncertain so you know some people will, will miss that but now we can schedule them uh, uh exactly when we want i really don't think that there's going to be an upgrade like the merge ever again like with node operators having to learn how to operate two different nodes, this upgrade happening with a total terminal difficulty threshold rather than a block height. I think there were so many unique aspects of creating this upgrade. And I have, like, as I've been listening in on developer calls, I have heard developers talking about how there were certain components of the merge that if they could go back in time, they would do differently. Like, for example, having to upgrade the Bellatrix, basically having to do the Bellatrix upgrade on the beacon chain first before um, having to do the the Paris upgrade. Curious to know, Ben, like looking back on all these like tireless years of, of working on this, if there was one thing you could have changed or done differently about the merge upgrade, what would it have been? Wow, what a good question. I just, I'll, I'll come back to that Bellatrix thing because that, that was interesting. I was observing that, that that was great and I wish we could do that more often, um, you know, have a sort of pre, pre-fork fork because the that Bellatrix upgrade flushed out so many user issues, misconfigurations, and so on. So we made Teku so that uh, it would not start if it was misconfigured after Bellatrix. Um, you know, it was a sledgehammer option, and other clients did the same thing. But it really flushed out those people who were not merge ready. That's interesting. Um, uh, at I that point, that. and um, and I think that helped to make the event itself go much more smoothly. So the stakes were much lower. Uh, for the Bellatrix upgrade, it was just a normal, you know, network fork. Um, uh, and that sort of made sure that everyone on the consensus side was was pretty much, you know, well configured when when the main event came. So so that was good. Um, what would I change about it? Uh, 
our question would have maybe done it a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's taken a long time. I know you were one of the proponents that during the difficulty bond debate was like, no, guys, we should keep the pressure on. <laughs> Let's keep rolling. To, to, to be fair, uh, everybody rallied around. I think impending DevCon was um, was focused everyone's minds, right? Nobody wanted to walk into DevCon having not delivered the merge, you know. Uh, all the devs you know, decided, okay, we, we want to go in and be conquering heroes. Um, and I think that really helped to focus minds on actually delivering this thing. The difficulty bomb, as usual, was just a nuisance. You know, I'm, I'm very anti-difficulty bomb. Another underrated benefit of the merge, we never need to talk about the difficulty bomb again. Um, and, uh, thank goodness. Uh, thank goodness for that. Um, so, yeah, but I've, I've seen how the community in general and you know, client teams can you know, procrastinate is, is putting it too strongly, but you can always run another test. There's always an excuse to push it another week, another week, another week. And it soon adds up to you know, potentially quite a long delay. So I was very pleased, actually, that um, once we delayed the, the, the bomb from you know, back three months or whatever we did, um, that actually teams rallied around and made a commitment uh, to delivering in September. And that yeah, delighted me. Um, I felt that was uh, very positive. And uh, yeah, and we did it. So uh, <laughs> terrific. It's a huge feat. And I mean, one thing, just going back to the to something that you may have, that perhaps was something you wanted to do differently. Do you think you would have spent more time trying to work on the Besu client? Um, with Teku and Besu kind of being a pair, mm. which I feel like some other client teams don't necessarily have. Um, how much of like a strength or a weakness mm. do you think that is of both Teku of the Teku consensus client being a lot more affiliated with a certain execution layer client more so than other consensus layer clients? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And the execution side is very um, dominated by Geth. Geth has the longest history um and has you know ever since early days with parity you know parity has been a spent force for for a while it became open ethereum and then has formally died now um most of the clients on the in fact all, all the clients apart from geth on the execution side just do not have that maturity um you know never mind has been around quite a long time but has had very small usage not much usage in mining um base has been around uh well, we started work on it five years ago. Um, I attended the initial planning meetings when I joined Consensus and the uh, the first sprint uh, planning meetings. But uh, it, again, it hasn't been broadly used and, uh, and mostly its focus hasn't been on mainnet. And then you've got Aragon, which was formerly Turbo Geth, but that's been completely reworked and rewritten um, for this. So that, that sort of track record hasn't hasn't been there for, for some of the minority clients. And... Basu is a solid client. It, it, it's good stuff. I mean, it's uh, my Basu Teku uh, setup here is running uh, almost near flawlessly. I'm, I'm missing a couple of attestations a day. Well, not even that. One every one or two days, which is more than I used to. But you know that that's really excellent performance. Uh, there is a little slowness. So the block processing, the block import on Basu, and now is now on the critical path. It was never on the critical path before. But now when Teku receives a block, it needs to validate it. It sends the execution payload to Teku to do its validation of the transactions in the block. Uh, and it receives back a yes or no on that. And then it can Teku can make its attestation to the state of the network. Now, if you receive a block a bit late and it takes a long time, you know, a couple of seconds to validate in, in Besu, then that can push you over the four-second threshold. So we have four seconds to do this block import and validation and then we have to make our attestation. So it's very synchronous. There's a tight time bound now, which, um, again, is new on the execution client world. Nobody used to care. I mean, if, if basically we're slow importing blocks, yeah, who cares? You might be a second or two seconds behind the head of the chain, but it has no practical importance at all. So they, they haven't really had um, this exposed or this really be on the critical path before. Uh, there will be, huh. uh, I, I don't know what day this, this will go out, but it's uh, Wednesday 21st today, there will be a basic release, which does address some of these uh, issues to an extent and will we'll, we'll help with the um, uh, 
efficiency of importing the blocks and, and some other issues so yeah i'm i'm, I'm happy with where we are i mean i i think um the the execution client teams had the bulk of the work to do you know on the consensus side we've been working towards this moment for like three years or, or more uh four years perhaps um since we first started building these clients and we only had one purpose, which was to run proof of stake, whereas the execution teams got on board about a year and a half ago and have you know, had a lot of work to do. So uh, uh, kudos to them. I think they've all done in, an incredible job. No, definitely. Is your node still called Metal Albert, Ben? <laughs> Metal Albert, yeah, is happily running still and uh, participating um, uh, wonderfully in the network, staking from home and uh, has been trouble free. So, uh, yeah, very happy. That's great to hear. And this podcast will be out on Friday. So I think that improvement or that upgrade to the the Besu client should be should be out by the time this podcast is is up. So if you're running a Teku Besu client, be sure to be on the lookout for that. And I think developers, you know, this sprint that they've been on getting the merge prepared. Now developers are going to have somewhat of a short break, but I've been seeing commentary on on Twitter of Ethereum core developers who are already starting to look ahead to Shanghai. The next big upgrade on Ethereum, it's like you guys just don't sleep. Um, and there's been some kind of conversation on Twitter around um, just how guaranteed it is that Shanghai will include staked ETH withdrawals. Mm. There's a little bit of, of back and forth, I think, between uh, certain developers, Micah Zoltu, Preston Van Loon. I think, Ben, you had also um, tweeted about this. But how guaranteed is it that staked ETH withdrawals are shoo-in for the next upgrade? And what are your estimations right now of when Shanghai will be um, activated on Ethereum. Yeah, this is a problem with uh, delivering something. The uh, uh, it sets an expectation now, and we have to keep delivering. So <laughs> pressure never stops. Um, withdrawal. So if we assume that Shanghai uh, is the first post-merge upgrade, I mean, whatever we call it, there, there will be a first post-merge upgrade. Um, what what goes into it? We haven't done the full governance process on that yet. So the core devs, there's a process involving EIPs and core dev meetings, and then we have a, a schedule of um, accepting and rejecting EIPs for that. And we, and we have a list of possibles, but we haven't um, gone through the process of determining you know, exactly what is in and what is out and committing to that or committing to a time frame for delivering that. And you're absolutely right, Christine. I mean, there's there's a bit of a hiatus now. Um, teams are just taking a break. We're suspending core devs meetings around DevCon, and we'll be kind of fully back um, uh, in November and, you know, up and running and, and keen to make progress again. So what what's my personal view? Um, I would like to see withdrawals ASAP. I think they we have a soft commitment to the stakers and the community who – made an incredible leap of faith, putting a huge amount of stake into the chain uh, with no you know, prospect uh, of you know, uh, or timeline for, for getting it out. I think we kind of owe it to the people who supported the, the, the chain throughout. More importantly, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, you know, we, we need to work on the sort of centralization pressures of um, staking. We need, and in particular, we need to give people the opportunity to unstake from operators that have become large over the life of the beacon chain that perhaps weren't when when they when people staked, but are now dominating. And I think we'll see a reshuffling of you know where people choose to put their uh, their ether. Uh, yeah, Rocket Pool didn't exist for the first year of uh, the beacon chain's life, uh, and as you know, the the, the only fully decentralized um staking pool protocol you know i'd like to see that get some love so i'd love to see people take uh for example stake out of lido which is a liquid staking protocol and put it into rocket pool which is also a liquid staking protocol yeah and lido launched very quickly but they decided to launch first decentralized later that's that's a tough strategy i mean you know they got their work cut out to to deliver that rocket pool delayed their launch but launch fully decentralized, but as a result, they're, they're, they're lagging. So, you know, I, I would like to see a rebalancing, and the only way to deliver that is to um, unlock um, people's stakes. Uh, 
yeah, so so I think there are a number of reasons, and also it's, it's pretty well specced now. Um, we we know what we need to do, um, and it's it's a nice easy win. So my ideal world is a quick maybe four or five months post emerge, you know, in four or five months from now, um, quick fork to uh, uh, have withdrawals and maybe some small EVM upgrades that, that have been, uh, you know, held back for a long time and just people are really, uh, devs are really begging for. Uh, and then the other thing is EIP 4844, which is uh, we call proto-dank sharding. So it's basically a block size increase, um, but the the increased data is only temporary. We don't have to store it forever. This is a scalability mechanism to support rollups uh, for that to come later because that's that's much less mature. Um, and 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 separate that out of the Shanghai, if we're calling that the first fork. Does that make sense? Yes, that was really good, clear information. And I think that the four to five month timeline is um, much faster than I expected. But I was assuming that, you know, the proto-dank sharding EIP4844 would be included in Shanghai. But I understand that a lot of that is still, there's still a lot of research questions around that. Whereas for state ETH withdrawals, a lot of the the discussions around how to enable it, would it be partial or full, um, push versus pull, like these kinds of technical discussions were had on Ethereum mm. core developer calls beforehand. So this idea idea of splitting up some of the more research focused um, EIPs from the ones that are ready to ready to go, ready to be implemented, wouldn't require um, a ton of more um, research and development to get ready. I think that makes sense to me. Um, I'm glad that you had mentioned and brought up this um, concern around centralization on, on Ethereum, because I think that's definitely a big topic that I do want to get into. And you had mentioned Rocket Pool about, you know, it had launched later. One of the concerns I have around Rocket Pool and its lack of adoption is this idea that you need to to put up 16 ETH before you can um, operate a validator or before you can, um, yeah, operate a validator node operator on, on um, Rocket Pool. Do you think that that being fully decentralized and requiring that 16 ETH is another big reason why Rocket Pool isn't seeing more adoption. Um, just the capital efficiency of a decentralized system requires more safeguards than, say, a centralized entity that is able to kind of uh, have more oversight around their validator node operators directly rather than relying on this like trustless smart contract protocol. Yeah, uh, agreed. And uh, so they are looking at addressing this. So, you know, for, um, the, the, those who don't know, the uh, node operator in, in Rocket Pool needs to put up a 16 ETH bond. That's their contribution to the, the stake, and uh, users can stake any amount effectively, uh, adding adding up to 32 ETH, which is the minimum protocol stake. So, um, but the node operator has to uh, have put down half of that, and in case there's any trouble. Uh, so node operator, you know, um, their node fails and they just leave it and don't do anything and the uh, the, the balance gets decreased, um, then uh, the maximum they can lose is 16 ETH. I mean, that's written in the protocol. After you've lost 16, you get kicked out of the protocol. And and so the other stakers who pulled on that node, they, they get their stake returned whole and it's the node operator who, who is penalized. Um, Rocket Pool. So I haven't followed very closely the last couple of months what the uh, conversation and design is looking like. But a little while ago, they announced an intention to potentially cut that to four ether. They did a risk based analysis of what was actually, um, you know, likelihood of, of what a node operator might might lose, uh, and uh, determined that four ether was probably sufficient, which uh, immediately multiplies by four the number of nodes that, that can be run. Uh, which which is great. I mean, this is much much better capital uh, efficiency. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a, a friction point for for the protocol, um, and part of the cost of being fully decentralized. Um, and it could be in future. There's, there's technologies like distributed validator technology, which uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, which aim to you know, what what we do in blockchain technology is we build reliable systems on top of unreliable infrastructure and distributed validator technology takes that to another level and you can have multiple nodes operating as a single node and if any one or two of them go down the the node still continues to operate um perfectly well and so you can take nodes down for maintenance or have some you know go on vacation and your node falls over and you can't fix it or whatever and it doesn't break anything so 
now you've got much more reliable infrastructure and under those circumstances you can potentially make it much easier you, you don't have to gatekeep the protocol so lido now at the moment have to vet their node operators it's one reason they can't fully decentralize one of their stated reasons because they need to maintain a quality level because they socialize all the uh, rewards and penalties um, and so if they let in a poorly performing um, node operator then uh, that affects everybody so they have to sort of gatekeep but with this distributed validator technology you can you can tolerate poorly performing operators um, and uh, it, it, it's potentially much easier to decentralize it's really great to hear about these kinds of of solutions being discussed of how to decentralize Lido, which is the biggest staking protocol on Ethereum, how to make Rocket Pool a decentralized alternative, more capital efficient. Um, I know there's talks about um, how to make even the MEV landscape on Ethereum less centralized towards flashbots. Um, lots of different conversations around how to improve the the centralization of Ethereum. But one of the things that I feel still a little bit concerned about is that Ethereum moved to a proof of stake protocol without any of this infrastructure really being ready. Like dis distributed validator tech is not ready. MEV boost, or I, I should say, um, enshrined proposer booster separation is not ready. Um, in, instead, we have this, this more centralized version that relies on, on third-party relays. Um, you know, Rocket Pool is, is still, um, it, it is an option, but again, staked ETH withdrawals are not ready. So it's not as though any of the stake that's currently on Coinbase or currently on Kraken can really move there. Um, it seems like some of the core infrastructure to support decentralization for Ethereum as a proof-of-stake blockchain is just not there. Is that concerning to you? Are you? Do you think that Ethereum today is more centralized and vulnerable to censorship than Ethereum was as a proof-of-work blockchain? I, I don't think we've made things worse. Um, let me put it that way. And I think we have the opportunity to make things a lot better. So under proof-of-work, we had a handful of um, mining pools that uh, owned more than 50% of the hash rate. Uh, you know, it was four or five. Um, and under proof of stake, we have four or five large pools that uh, effectively control more than half of the, the the stake. And it's exactly analogous. I mean, staking with a centralized pool doesn't doesn't does not meaningfully add decentralization. Adding hash rate to a mining pool does not meaningfully add decentralization. So it, it, it's analogous. So I don't think we've made things worse. Uh, but under proof of state, we we definitely have the opportunity to make things better. And you know, to come back to your your question, um, we're pragmatists. I mean, it's one of the reasons I I really like Ethereum and why I think Ethereum makes progress where others don't necessarily is that we don't hang around until we have the perfect design. And the beacon chain design is far from perfect. I mean, there's all sorts of ugly bolting of things together, but it's it's good enough. Um, it's robust enough, uh, you know, at heart, we're engineers, we get the job done and deliver. And then we, you know, the, the, we anticipate cleaning up later and, you know, making sure that things, things uh, are built. And we're looking at multi-decadal timescales here. So that, you know, the vision is very long term and the landscape will look very different in a year or five years or, or 10 or 20 years. So um, it's about having the capability of decentralization we, and we didn't have that under proof of work the economies of scale of proof of work are so powerful that you know individuals like myself were completely unable to participate meaningfully decentralize uh, the network um, in, in a meaningful way whereas under proof of stake individuals like myself can can run our nodes at home and all over the planet and uh, it is feasible so we we have that tool available and it's up to the community, the social layer, whether to adopt that or not. They didn't have the choice under proof work. Now they have the choice and, you know, uh, can get on board. And the other thing is that we we also have a toolkit that was unavailable under proof of work for dealing with bad actors in the system on, on a grand scale. So, uh, you know, this is a controversial topic and no doubt you will grill me over this, but um, we have social the, slashing. Are you going to mention yeah, social it, slashing? Exactly, social slashing. So we have the ability to identify bad actors in the system and 
you know, coordinate as a community, not as devs, not as Vitalik saying, you know, you're bad, you must go, but as a community who run nodes to decide on their fate. Uh, that happens automatically in protocol already for people who break the rules of the protocol and it, we're able to detect it automatically, then the, then they're slashed. So if they propose two blocks at the same height or they, you know, attest in certain contradictory ways, then they're kicked out of the protocol and, and they lose some of their stake. Uh, we can also identify bad behavior manually, as it were, and we can decide as a community that this is against the um, the spirit of the protocol, the you know, the uh, or even in a sense the rules of the protocol, because it's the ex- expectation is you do not censor. So if we identify censoring nodes, then effectively they're acting against the protocol. Or if they're refusing to build on blocks which are perfectly good blocks according to the rules of the protocol, but contain censored transactions, that's breaking the rules of the protocol. Difficult to detect automatically, but we can detect it. Um, you know, socially and, 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 and take care of it. I have to agree that a lot of it depends on this, on the community, on the community of Ethereum to use uh, certain relays that are censorship resistant versus not censorship resistant. Uh, social slashing requires community coordination against these bad actors. A lot of it falls on the Ethereum community, but I wonder, I really wonder if the Ethereum community is unified behind a vision of Ethereum that is censorship resistant and that is um, could go against even the regulations and the laws of a big country like the U.S. Um, I, 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 I say this because a lot of the adoption and a lot of the activity on Ethereum um, is already to some extent um, controlled and and censored, and um, people rely more on th- centralized third parties than they do um, their own nodes. So, like we are, we've already seen a lot of stake going to uh, regulated entities like exchanges. We've already seen a, a ton, a lot of nodes on Ethereum being operated through Infura rather than your own. It's it seems like already in the tech stack of Ethereum, there's this, there's this, there's a lot of users that already um, seem less uh, uh, to the cypherpunk vision and more towards seeking mass adoption, even if that means that, you know, there are some sacrifices that you, you need to make. So Ben, I mean, where do you fall in this spectrum of cypherpunk versus adoption and how united do you think the Ethereum community is to, 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 like, I guess, rally around these like core, a core set of, of values like censorship resistance, incredible neutrality, which I think I see strongly in the Bitcoin community. But in the Ethereum side, I, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, Christina. It's, it's, it's hard to know. Um, and I, I was really glad, actually, to see this uh, tornado cash thing blow up because we have been complacent for some years. Yeah, we just have not fought regulatory headwinds um, in Ethereum. Uh, and a lot of people have come on board and into the community and haven't been faced with these existential questions. Um, and, you know, what haven't per- perhaps really thought through what are the values of Ethereum? What are what are the blockchain um, cypherpunk values? Uh, and what are we really doing here? Um, and so having that question exposed and asked and um seeing the responses to it has been been really fascinating and i'm very glad that we're we're having the conversation and i'm i'm pleased to see you know strong voices coming out against uh censorship um yeah and yeah no nobody supports uh north korea laundering money but there are there, there are strong principles at stake here um and you know personally i i buy into that you know i i will run a node as long as I can legally do so. And if I can't legally do so, I'll have to ask some hard questions. But yeah, potentially, I'll just have to shut it down. I, I, I do, I never wish to run a node that censors transactions or behaves in a way to censor other people's transactions. So I hope that that will become normative narrative. But ultimately, the better way is to build it into the protocol, right? Incentivize good behaviors uh, or actually enshrine them into our fork choice rule, into our validity rule in protocol. So uh, longer term, 
we're not there. We might not be there for a couple of years, but when we have uh, censorship resistance lists and you know censorship uh, hardening within the protocol, then people have the much harder question to sort of answer. You know, either you run a node or you don't run a node. You can't run a censoring node. So, um, and I, I think that would be a much better place to be in. But you know, come back to your observation earlier, that's not in place yet. Um, I, I kind of wish it were, but it's not. And but we're pragmatists. At some point, we will we will deliver it. Meanwhile. We rely on people, you know, um, doing the right thing. Hmm. No, I think that's a great answer, Ben. Um, and, and to that point of relying on people to do the right thing. And in the meanwhile, until these other, until these other components of the protocol are fleshed out and, and updated and upgraded through future hard forks, um, there's one actor in particular that I think has really become a core part of, 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 Ethereum, the conversation around Ethereum's protocol, and that is Flashbots. Mm. What are your honest thoughts around Flashbots? Are they doing more harm than good to the community or more good than harm? Um, what, how, what's your experience been working with the Flashbots team, especially in lead up to the merge around MEB mm. Boost and some of the conversations that um, you've been privy to about um, the role that they play, the increasingly large role they play in the, in the ecosystem? Flashbots is a fascinating um, thing to 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 think through. I mean, there's such a chimera, right? I, there are you you can look at it and say it's all bad, or you can look at them and say it's all good, and and actually there, there's bad and good sort of mixed up in there. Um, and so so often in protocol design, what we end up with because we we're always in an adversarial environment, what we end up with is the least worst solution, and you know that kind of feels. Uh, uncomfortable sometimes you, you've got to do things which are a bit icky that you don't really want but it's the least worst option any other option is actually worse than what you end up with and that's kind of where we've got to with flashbots um yeah so on the one hand they are doing incredible work ex exposing mev preventing it from just taking place in kind of dark pools and out of sight of every, everybody else, they're, they're taking the priority gas auction off the main chains, which is one reason we see such low gas prices the, these days. And they are adding a facility. You know, they they have the facility of the private mempool, so that if you want to avoid being front run, or you want to recover funds from an account that's been hacked, or um, you, you, you want to, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, do something which you don't want to publish to the, the the public mempool for whatever reason. That that facility exists and exists because of flashbots. So, yeah, that, there's a lot of good that they are able to to provide. Uh, on the other hand, you've got MEV. People are ambiguous about MEV. Some people are yeah, and there's kind of shades of MEV. There's sort of good value to extract or reasonable value to extract, like liquidations of underwater positions or arbitrage between exchanges and you know these are fairly neutral and there's you know clearly sort of malicious mev like front running sandwich attacks and so on um and people take different views on that as well um but the other thing is that, that the flashbots relay is censoring so to come back to that uh they explicitly do not include tornado cash uh transactions and they've, they've taken a, a view to respect the the ofac list Rightly or wrongly, I mean, I, I think wrongly, but um, that's their their view, their considered view, and you know, it's their, their necks on the line, so it's up to them. Uh, but that disappoints me. Um, so, and there's a there's just a lot in the mix. What well, one thing that worries me is that this whole we now have a number of block builders. So there, are, I think, at least three entities. There's Blocks Route, um, there's Block Native, there's Flashbots. I think are the currently active block builders within. Ethereum, or you can run your own node and build your own blocks, which is which is what I'm doing. But if you want to get MEV blocks, then you, you have a bit of a choice. But the problem is that there's this sort of virtuous circle, right, um, or um, amplification effect. So the searchers, who are the ones who go out and find the MEV opportunities, they want to use the block builder who can get their bundles into onto the blockchain fastest so they they want the um builder who's who's got the most validator signed up the validators sign up with the block builder that gives them the biggest rewards um and the um yeah uh the block builder um inevitably 
that tends to centralize on one single block builder who ends up building all the blocks because um, you know, flashbots, as it is in this circumstance, I think they've got 80% of all MEV blocks are, are produced by them currently on the beacon chain. We'll see how that, 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 that develops. But they inevitably end up cornering the market because they have, they have the most validator signed up, they're offering, and because of that, they're able to offer the most valuable blocks, which means more validator sign up and so on and so on. Very hard for a smaller um, or a, an, a, you know, an outsider to come in and compete with that. It's a big bundle of gray <laughs> because mm. I also understand the argument that rather than having centralization of validators, of certain validators that are extremely good at identifying, at being a, an at building blocks that contain MEV, you'd rather have that centralization on a layer that is that is not the protocol layer. Mm. Um, but even centralization among third-party block builders does impact, you know, the censorship resistance of the protocol layer as well. And I I I see, and like I'm hearing from you too, that centralization of block builders is still on the mind of developers. And that, you know, while it's not the same concern of centralization on the protocol level, which we've kind of discussed with with large staking pools, um, this seems to have created an, a new issue, like a new problem for for developers to kind of figure out how to decentralize. Um, are there any solutions around decentralizing block builders um, that you think are are that are ready for implementation or close to ready to implementation. Cause we talked about some of those things that are upcoming for the protocol layer, but block builder centralization is also a, a big concern. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insights there, Ben, on, on some of the ways in which developers are looking at tackling that issue. One of the things on the roadmap is um, propose a builder separation, baking that into the protocol. So we currently have this sort of trust-based model uh, whereby uh, me as a staker, I have to trust my third-party block builder if I choose to use one. And reminder, it's optional. Um, but you know, you you will undoubtedly get the best uh, rewards if you if you do that. Um, so enshrining it in the protocol gives us various options about smoothing the MEV, so distributing it more um, between validators. So you you end up with a socialized or averaged uh, MEV. Um, which decreases centralization pressures because rather than you know one person um uh one validator receiving a huge uh, MEV block uh then it's um you, you or and most receiving almost nothing you know if you join a pool and you get get the average well let's do that in protocols so that you can still be decentralized and get the average so that that will help um and also this idea that we can have censorship resistance lists. So um, the idea is that I, as a validator, I can tell the block builder, uh, you must include these 10 transactions, say. And I'll take those out of the mempool and they'll be the top 10 most valuable transactions. And I'll say to the block builder, you must include these. And if the block builder doesn't include them, um, if it includes any transaction which is less valuable than the ones I've said you must include, then uh, that block is invalid. Which so they have a powerful incentive to include these these transactions. I mean, they effectively uh, can't produce a block otherwise, um, and that that may that maintains censorship resistance. Now, I mean, so somebody can always get a transaction through. They may have to pay a little more gas, you know, um, to to get it through, but the transaction can, will always end up being included eventually so that is also um you know uh, a fairly straightforward way to improve the um censorship resistance the, the the downsides of this builder centralization and the upside of builder centralization is is the key to delivering this um full dank sharding as we call it which is uh data sampling um, uh, for for the blockchain, which enables massive scalability. So, without specialized block builders, we 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 can't do that. So, you know, again, it's kind of good and bad. Um, <laughs> we 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 balance and manage these uh, as best we can. Yeah, it's 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 like develop. I feel like Ethereum developers are kind of always stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> these conversations are and and these these discussions are are really about trade offs and. I'm really glad, Ben, that you went into some of those technical things, um, those these these technical topics of what's being 
thought about to improve the decentralization of of Ethereum's protocol level, its MEV ecosystem, um, and things like dank sharding that will also impact Ethereum's layer two um, ecosystem and its scalability roadmap in the future. And I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. And for the last couple of minutes of our of our talk together, I, I kind of want to take things very philosophical and um, take things a little bit from a bird's eye perspective. With all these, these um, pretty complex upgrades that are being discussed, are you concerned at all that the governance of Ethereum relies too heavily on Ethereum core developers that <laughs> with so much riding on Ethereum core developers to figure out and solve and to implement in Ethereum's future that most node operators, validator node operators on Ethereum are really just are just accepting, passively accepting upgrades, passively accepting these, these changes to the protocol that they might not fully understand, but that the governance of Ethereum has essentially cut out, it's definitely cut out miners, but but it, do, it does seem like the validator node operators are a little bit powerless here on, this, on these very complex topics of proto-dank sharding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do developers just hold too much power over the Ethereum protocol? <laughs> so uh, governance is one of these very slippery topics. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, and we... Uh, I had a really good point. <laughs> I've completely forgotten it. So. I'm really putting you on the hot seat here, Ben. I'm sorry. So, yeah, what to say about governance? Um, the validators, so people who put down stake are like miners. I mean, service providers in, in that sense. So we don't um, own the network as stakers. Uh, it's the users of the network who, who own it. Um, it's not the core devs. It's not the stakers. It, it's the people who use the network. Uh, and so the, the the end goal is to serve their needs. Ultimately, governance on blockchains is, or at least on Ethereum blockchain, is done by forking, hard forks. Um, that's always historically been the way uh, where it's been controversial, like the DAO fork. Um, we We've seen, you know, it, it worked. I mean, uh, we, we split into two chains, but the people who are happy were on one and the people who are unhappy are on another. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, everyone on the network chooses which piece of software to to run. And if the uh, core devs are not uh, are delivering something that people don't want to run, then, yeah, we, we've failed in our jobs. Um broadening governance too much at this point because we do have a very technical roadmap and the trade-offs that we've discussed are subtle have long-term consequences um i i do think that a kind of technocracy is is still um the right way to go for now uh as we're still adding features and and huge platform upgrades to things and as we settle down, I mean, the, the roadmap eventually will, will stop evolving and we'll start to, to become um, uh, not solidified um, uh, in terms of the, the, the tech. At that point, you know, governance, I think, can, can be broadened safely much, much more widely. But it, it is hard. Yeah, everyone's got a different view on what uh, on what devs should do. Devs do this, devs do that. Um, and... Yeah, we hear that. We obviously we we hear that. We listen. We consult. We talk to a lot of people. Um, we're aware of of what goes on. We're users of Ethereum. We're members of the community. Um, but we have these incredible trade offs and long term responsibility to deliver the, the the best tech for for the future. So, yeah, there we we do feel the weight of responsibility, but uh, and the process is slow and clunky, but it is transparent. You know, everything is out in the open anyone can come and have a say um it's relatively low bar to entry you know if you if you want to input you know on the forums there's the cat herders forum there's the eips forums there's the um github comments as if you have a good case to make you know you can be invited to a core devs call and people have done that many times in the past um but uh yeah it, it's i think self-awareness about governance we always have to be asking the question, always coming back, is it right, is it right? And, you know, I know Tim Bako very well, his former colleague. He's now chair of the Cordes meetings. We talk. Um, I know he's always continually soul-searching about this and, um, uh, yeah, aiming 
to be as transparent and um, accommodating of all views as we, as we possibly can. That's a really hard job. I think the Ethereum core developer, you as an Ethereum core developer, um, I think we keep coming back to this, that you guys are juggling quite a lot of, of different balls and, and trade-offs. And I, I, I get it. I get it that Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, is innovating and changing its technology um, in very big ways. It's not in maintenance mode. There are things in its future roadmap that does necessitate um, this amount of centralization in the governance that once Ethereum gets to this point of more, uh, of less degrees of, of, you know, we need to add this and we need to add that and um, gets to a point where it is, it ha it can really sustainably and and efficiently su support this vision of being a world computer that that governance um that that governance doesn't have to be so centralized on developers who are required to ship these upgrades um and connected to that i think another question beyond just governance is code complexity mm. with Peter, um, I'm, I always butcher his last name. I think it's Sizigali. Um, but he had mentioned, you know, in this process of, of preparing for the merge and what the merge really does is it increases a layer of complexity to the Ethereum code base. And that may or may not make it a lot riskier to introduce other changes to the code because there's no one developer that can, that can now have like a full view of, of how Ethereum works. You've got consensus layer developers who are very focused on the beacon chain and understand it. And then you've got the execution layer developers who understand this other part of how Ethereum works. And this this increasing complexity around Ethereum's protocol um, could also be its downfall. I mean, what are your thoughts, Ben, around Ethereum's increasing code complexity? These are all very big philosophical things, but I just <laughs> love discussing them with you because I know you've thought about them. Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Christine. And um, I am very, I'm trying to write about this um, proof of stake protocol, this consensus layer uh, that, that we've built. I'm trying to document it and explain it. And uh, uh, every day as I try and write about it, I, I feel its complexity. It is definitely um, a beast, even just taking the, the consensus layer on its own um, and you know, joining it with this execution layer that's also got you know, years of technical debt um, has been, um, yeah, Pete, you know, Peter's observation is, is on point. Uh, and I would love to move in the direction of simplification i think you know it is not the design is not as complicated as it used to be but over time we we still accrue more and more tech debt um and uh yeah it's hard it it, it is a, it is a risk uh absolutely for sure and it does make every um upgrade that we deliver you know the amount of testing around it and the amount of you know code that needs to be developed um it does increase and become a burden, but this is you know tech debt in any software is is like this, uh, and any long lived chain that aspires to be you know the uh, as significant as Ethereum does is 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 going to suffer from this. But um, yeah, I would love us to move in the direction of of simplification over time. Things like single slot finality, which is sort of out there somewhere on the roadmap, is is one thing we can do, and. Um, yeah, with the benefit of experience and hindsight, there are simplifications to be made in the EVM. And, you know, we will make, instead of having a consensus client and an execution client, you know, in a few years' time, I can see us having, uniting them into one client, you know, maybe Basu and Teku just become one executable uh, that, that you can run. So, you know, there's that practical complexity is taken out and, and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, we, we do feel it uh, uh, acutely. But what's the alternative? I mean, you know, I said earlier, we're, we're engineers, we're pragmatists, we, we get on with the job. You know, if we sat around waiting for the perfect design um, to land, then, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to mention any other blockchain's names. But, uh, uh, listener, draw your own conclusions. But, you know, we, we would never deliver anything. Um, but we are ultimately pragmatists. We have to take a view and get on with it. Man, it's the more that I talk to you, the more that I think my job as an Ethereum researcher will not end in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> It'll see me through to retirement quite happily. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad to say. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've probably got 
five years of intense activity and then five years of moderate activity and then everything settles down. Um, but uh, until the next thing comes along, I mean, you know. Well, I really, really appreciate the time, Ben. Thank you so much for being on the Galaxy Brains podcast. Everyone, this was this week's episode. If you um, want to reach out to any of us, if you want to stay updated about um, Galaxy research um, content, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Um, our handle is GLXY Research and Ben, how can people be following you and your um, work with with the tech client? Uh, so Twitter's probably your, your best place. So I am Benjaminian underscore XYZ or XYZ if you prefer on uh, Twitter, but you'll you'll soon be able to to, to find me there. Great. Uh, I'm no longer writing what's new in ETH2. I uh, put an end to that at the 100th edition, just uh, pre-merge, everything came together. So um, I'm focusing fully on, on writing this um, upgrading Ethereum book. Uh, as as well as the Teku sort of product management side of things uh, now. But uh, yeah, Christine, it has been so good to talk to you again. And thank you so much for the invitation to uh, join you on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening. Talk to you guys again next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. That's all for today. See you next time.